Fascinating people, fascinating places. G'day and welcome to the Dan Mainwaring Podcast. This is where we talk to and about the famous and the infamous, the celebrated and the obscure, the well-known and the undiscovered. On the 21st of January, 1793, a grisly scene unfolded at the Place de la Revolution in Paris. After attempting to address the crowd, only to have his words drowned out by drums, Louis XVI, the King of France, was decapitated by guillotine. Spectators rushed forward and soaked their handkerchiefs in his blood to create a macabre souvenir of the event. A critical figure in the demise of Louis XVI was the revolutionary Maximilien Robespierre. He had argued that giving the king a trial would undermine the Republic. His fate had already been sealed. As Robespierre put it, Louis must perish because our country must live. But just one year later, the incorruptible revolutionary and reformer would meet the very same fate on the exact spot. In this episode, I examine the life of Maximilian Robespierre, his development from a precocious child into a lawyer, then a revolutionary, and ultimately, in the eyes of many, a tyrant. There are unsubstantiated legends claiming that Robespierre's ancestors came to France from Ireland during the English Reformation. Genealogists have disputed these claims, but what we do know is that Maximilian was the firstborn child of Francois and Jacqueline de Robespierre, coming into the world on the 6th of May, 1758. His father was a lawyer, though reputedly a mediocre one. Nonetheless, Robespierre's sister later claimed that Maximilian was a happy and carefree child up until the tragic death of his mother when he was aged six. As a widower, his father soon decided he couldn't take care of his children and pawned them off on relatives before fleeing town. It was at this juncture that the young happy child became much more serious, burying his head in books. He favoured the classics and developed a particular interest in the Roman Republic, which was ended when Julius Caesar established himself as the first de facto dictator of Rome. It said Robespierre was an excellent student, and while a student, he was chosen to make a presentation before King Louis XVI, who was visiting the area. What should have been a moment of great honour for the young boy turned into farce, when the king's arrival was preceded by rain. The monarch and his queen elected to remain in their carriage as Robespierre delivered his speech, but then sped off halfway throughout while its wheels reportedly splattered the young Maximilian with mud. The two would cross paths again years later, with Louis facing humiliation. But in the interim, Maximilian continued his studies. He was particularly drawn to the work of the political philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and there were some remarkable parallels between the two. As with Robespierre, Rousseau's mother died during childbirth, leaving the young Jean-Jacques to be raised by his father, but this didn't last long. Like Robespierre's father, he fled and left extended family to raise his children. Rousseau was radical, arguing for direct democracy where everyone could vote rather than just the elites as was the norm in Europe at the time. 
He also believed people were inherently good, and it was society that corrupted them. Robespierre latched onto these ideas. He was opposed to the death penalty. For context, during this era, just across the Channel in Britain, there were over 200 capital offences at this time, most of them trivial, by modern standards. And he was a firm opponent of war, having read how endless battles enabled Julius Caesar to rise to power and end 500 years of the Roman Republic. But these types of ideas posed a direct threat to the status quo in France, where the disgruntled middle class were sandwiched between the decadent elites and the masses of peasants struggling to survive through famines and bread shortages. But the powers that be lacked the clout they'd had just a few centuries before, where once the political and religious authorities could brutally suppress dissenters like Watt Tyler, John Wycliffe and Jan Hus, Robespierre grew up in an era where Northern Europe had broken from the Pope in Rome. People like Kant, Adam Smith and Voltaire were writing theses that threatened to unravel the fabric of society, and colonists in America had dared to demand an end to taxation without representation, and in Ireland, at this time, both Presbyterians and Catholics were agitating for an end to British rule. As a lawyer, Robespierre threw himself into cases where he could defend the poor, a class of people often mistreated under the law. Despite his gaunt figure and awkward demeanour, he quickly became a respected figure, and he soon transitioned into politics. In 1789, he was chosen to be a member of the Third Estate, which was kind of the French equivalent of the British House of Commons, albeit with less clout, initially. The French Parliament had three sections. The first comprised of the clergy, the second the nobility, and the third for the commoners, although only people who paid taxes could stand for it, which meant it was effectively limited to people like Robespierre, lawyers and merchants, with no peasants involved. Traditionally, the clergy and the nobles had supported the monarchy, which meant a two-to-one majority, and the third estate lacked any clout. But in 1789, the French economy was in ruins, and this turned the tide against the king. He wanted to raise taxes, the third estate did not, but members of the latter convinced enough representatives of the first estate that they should scrap this archaic system and instead create a general assembly where all of the delegates would participate and from which there would be one versus three responses to any proposed legislation. The king tried to put a stop to it, but Robespierre and his colleagues made an agreement on a tennis court at Versailles that they would refuse to leave until a new constitution had been agreed upon. The country was now set on a course towards revolution and a post-monarchy era, but it wasn't a quick process. While many were dissatisfied with the status quo, they all had their own ideas for a way forward, including Robespierre. He became involved in a club known as the Society of the Friends of the Constitution, which later became known simply as the Jacobin Club. It was here he met like-minded Republicans, and he promoted ideas like voting rights for all men, tax and judicial reform. But the Jacobin group was divided between what became known as the Montagnards, the group Robespierre belonged to, and the Girondins. While both groups sought to create a republic, 
The Girondins were unsettled at the increasing lawlessness and violence as revolutionary acts occurred while Louis XVI was still nominally in control. The Girondins also wanted to expand their revolutionary ideas beyond France, and in agreement with the king, who was under house arrest, in 1792 they launched a war with Austria. Robespierre was opposed to the war, arguing that if they are Caesars, Catalinas or Cromwells, they seize power for themselves. I recently spoke with Marissa Linton, Professor Emerita of History at Kingston University in England, and I asked her for more information on Robespierre's views on war. If you make the military too powerful, then military leaders might overthrow the Republic for their own benefit. That's, that's the kind of risk that you can see with the Julius Caesar. Now, in that sense, Robespierre proves prescient course. He doesn't live to see it, but the rise of Napoleon is absolutely about that. It's about a sort of populist military dictatorship. So, but he doesn't live to see it, obviously he doesn't know that's going to happen, but he suspects something like that might happen. And so his fear is that you give too much power to the generals. Robespierre's power is always as a civilian, as a, as a politician, not someone who controlled, directly controlled armies. The other reason that he opposes war with Austria is that the, the groups that were pushing for war, uh, led by a man called Brissot, they argued that they would be able to bring a war and it would be a, a good war, a war of liberation. And that they said that the ordinary peoples of Europe would, would welcome them with open arms, the French soldiers. Mm -hmm. And Robespierre said, no one welcomes armed liberators. That is, even though he strongly believed the revolutionary principles are right, you can't export them at the point of a bayonet. And this, of course, I think was... You know, this is one of the reasons why I have a lot of time for Robespierre, because of these things that he was saying. They were moral positions that he held, because he was ready to um, risk popularity in order to say them. It was an unpopular view to be against the war at that time, but he thought it was right. So he was a very kind of self-righteous man in a lot of ways, but he stuck to guns because his guns when he thought he, he was right about things. Louis' position was already precarious at this point, as just a year earlier, he tried to flee, but left behind a letter detailing his plans to reverse the reforms. Neighbouring monarchs were naturally alarmed at Louis' situation. Prussia and Austria invaded territory in western France, and declared their aim was to restore Louis' full power. This didn't go down well in France. Louis was formally arrested, and the French armies beat back the Prussians at Valmy. On the 22nd of September, the monarchy was officially abolished, and a republic created in its place. But while the threat of Prussian invasion had lingered, the Jacobins had also set about identifying threats from within, counter-revolutionaries. At the top of the list were the Catholic priests, who had refused to take an oath to the Republic. But others included imprisoned Swiss guards, and political opponents were massacred by armed mobs who included mercenaries freed from prisons elsewhere in France. As late as 1791, Robespierre had proposed the abolition of the death penalty, and yet he defended the September riots. More significantly, in December 1792, as the politicians debated the fate of Louis XVI, Robespierre heavily influenced the discussions when he simply said, Louis must die so France can live. So how did the opponent of the death penalty and the seemingly forward-minded 
rational idealist suddenly swing the pendulum in the other direction? It was a question I put to Professor Linton. It was, it was a moral position that he took up. Um, Robespierre is all about morality and he thought the death penalty was neither effective as a deterrent and you know, it didn't work and also that it was barbaric. So he was opposed to it for those reasons, and he continued to oppose it during the early part of the revolution. So he actually makes this attempt when he's part of the National Assembly. He suggests that they, in the new constitution there should be no death penalty. But people said to him, no, you can't, you can't do that because we have to have some sort of extreme penalty uh, so that the state can control criminality. He changes his mind. This is the thing about Robespierre that, that is really important. He changes his mind. So it's not as though he's kind of he's being a hypocrite all along. It's that he comes to think that other things are more important than the morality of an individual life. So basically he decides that sometimes you have to do things for, I suppose we call it the greater good, mm -hmm. he calls it for the, um, the survival of the Republic. Having accepted the use of execution as necessary for the greater good, Robespierre described those who embraced the laws of the Republic as virtuous and those who did not as tyrants, the so-called sans-culottes, which literally translates as without trousers, were working-class people in Paris who didn't wear the fancy breeches of the aristocracy. After the death of Louis, groups of these individuals became ever more violent and demanded action against anyone who seemed to be acting against the interests of the poor. Like the Roman emperor Caligula before him, Robespierre happily rolled up the poor to weaken the bourgeoisie the aristocrats, and anyone who posed a threat, real or imagined, to the revolution. While many Jacobins agreed terror was the order of the day, it was in his role as a member of the Committee of Public Safety that Robespierre, more than anyone else, became synonymous with what became known as the Reign of Terror. He publicly and vigorously defended the policy. The springs of popular government in revolution are at once virtue and terror. Virtue without terror is fatal. Terror without virtue is powerless. Terror is nothing other than justice. Prompt, severe, inflexible. It is, therefore, an emanation of virtue, a consequence of the general principle of democracy, applied to our country's most urgent needs. It has been said that terror is the principle of despotic government. Does your government therefore resemble despotism? Yes, as the sword that gleams in the hands of the heroes of liberty resembles those in the hands of the henchmen of tyranny. The Girondins, many of whom had prevaricated on the fate of the king, were among the hardest hit groups as their influence plummeted and in 1793, 22 Girondin leaders were sent to the guillotine. Another target during the Reign of Terror was the Catholic Church. It had been the predominant religious power in France for centuries, and like the nobility, its clerics owned huge tracts of land, were in many cases wealthy, and in some cases corrupt. The church was also seen as intrinsically entangled with the monarchy. While the majority of French citizens were nominally Catholic, there were other groups. The Protestant or Huguenot Christians were small in number after the Catholic-led massacre of 1592, but Robespierre gained support among this group. 
He also courted favour with the Jews by allowing them to vote. But another growing group were the atheists. Anti-religious mobs killed 200 priests in Paris over two days in 1792 alone. But Robespierre was not opposed to the concept of religion and admired the view of the Enlightenment philosopher Voltaire, who had stated that if God didn't exist, it would be necessary to invent him. Others sharply disagreed, and Jacobin commander Joseph Fouché was among those pushing to replace religion with an atheistic, philosophy-based cult of reason. In a precursor to what happened in the Soviet Union over a century later, churches, including Notre Dame, were converted into non-religious centres of learning. By 1793, Robespierre gained the upper hand and constituted the cult of the supreme being. It was based around his idea of a deity, as Professor Linton explains. The idea of the supreme being is an enlightenment idea, so he doesn't invent it. It's the idea of uh, a god who is a, a sort of a generally good god. So rather than following Christian doctrine sort of dogmatically, mm-hmm. it's, it's the idea that there is a beneficent god who, who wants good for us and that there will be an afterlife in which the, the good people will be rewarded. And this is, this is very much it. So it's a kind of an umbrella term, as it were, for, for religious faith. And it, it's an enlightenment idea. So it's not something he invents, but it's certainly something that he agrees with. And he thought it was a way of bringing people together. So he hoped that the many devout Catholics who were feeling alienated by the revolution and the revolutionary's treatment of the Catholic Church would feel that they could take this on board. Mm-hmm. But it, it was a difficult one because a lot of devout Catholics didn't want to go along with this idea of the supreme being. They had their, 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 their religious beliefs were much more specifically Catholic. And it, of course it didn't please the revolution's many atheists who didn't believe in God. Was the cult of the supreme being though just a cynical attempt to create a halfway house between the Catholics and the irreligious? It was something of a, a middle ground, but Robespierre wasn't a cynical type of man. If he'd been cynical, he, he would have been. He would have acted very differently. There were cynical people involved in revolutionary politics. He wasn't one of them. He was the, the negative side of Robespierre. And there certainly is a negative side. The negative side of Robespierre is that he was a very self-righteous sort of man and that he identifies himself so strongly with the revolution that he comes to believe that when he thinks a thing, this is for the good of the revolution. So he sort of conflicts his own ideas with the revolution, but he's, he's not cynical. There are, there are a lot of cynical people around, but he's not one. Hmm. And, and that's, why, that's why he has some popularity, because people see him as someone who's authentic, Mm-hmm. He really believes the stuff he says. And this is why he gets the super credit, the, the nick, nickname, the incorruptible, because he can't be bought. At a time when a lot of politicians can be bought, they want they want money, um, they, they want um, position, you know, but he, he never wanted those things. Neither Robespierre nor anyone else in this era held a title that signified the country was under the rule of a single individual. And indeed, it was a chaotic period of French history with rule by committee. But as more and more people got swept up in the reign of terror, some estimates say 300,000 were jailed, while tens of thousands were executed or died in prison, critics of Robespierre increasingly portrayed him as a dictator. By 1794, both British spies 
and Parisian rivals were comparing him to Pisistratus, the ancient Athenian general who became a dictator. When I look at France in the 1790s, you have this obscenely wealthy elite, the peasants, and the small middle class who are agitating for reform. It reminds me a lot of Russia in 1917, when you had the intelligentsia agitating for change, but then things spiraled out of control. Do you think in terms of modern history that the Russian Revolution is similar to what happened in France? Well, I'm, I'm always doubtful about making too close a par- parallel with the Russian Revolution because there are so many things about it that are, that are different. Mm-hmm. Um, I often hear Robespierre compared to Stalin. Stalin was the sole man in power over many years. This is not like Robespierre at all. He was shared power for one year on the Committee of Public Safety. So mm-hmm. they never got to that kind of situation. Um and he shared power with, with uh, 11 other men. And the people on the, in the convention also had very much a voice. So when they turned on Robespierre, it was over in, in a day. It was very easy to overthrow him. He didn't have that kind of uh, police force behind him that, that someone like Stalin did. There was nothing like that in that sense. But, but yeah, I mean, it, it does kind of show you that in politics you have to be you have to be, as I say, very careful of the people whom you, you trust the most. And, and that kind of bitter infighting was, was yeah, it was, it was lethal. But I think it's important, too, to see the bigger picture of terror and what was going on and what the, the government as a whole were doing, in which they were all implicated, not just Robespierre. Mm-hmm. So it was a very extreme situation. People were very tense. And Robespierre was not the only man by any means to, be, to, to find terror turning on him. 86 deputies of the National Convention were either executed or committed suicide to avoid execution. So it was a, it was a very tense circumstances and uh, circumstance and uh, feelings were running very high. People were afraid, but they had reason to be afraid. So it was a, it was a really horrible atmosphere those months. Rather like the Khmer Rouge of Cambodia two centuries later, the French revolutionaries created a new calendar that began with year one. The months of the year were renamed to remove religious and royal influences, and it was based on a decimal system. The period running from roughly mid-July to August was called Thermidor. It was in this month, in 1794, that Robespierre, having fought off a number of real and imagined threats, finally fell from grace. Jean-Labert Tallien, a member of the National Convention, publicly denounced him as a tyrant, and his rebuke was received with rapturous applause. Rival factions took up arms, and Robespierre barricaded himself in a building. Now, somehow, he incurred a gunshot wound, which ripped off part of his jaw. It's unknown whether he was attempting to take his own life, or simply hit in the crossfire. But regardless, he was arrested, tried, and sentenced to death. But what drove his colleagues dozens of whom offered testimony against him to make this move. There are lots of factors in Thermidor because they're, they're, they're a kind of, and that in itself, it would take me you know, hours just to talk about that, that there are many things happening. And there's a bigger picture as well in terms of um, people not seeing a need for terror anymore because the French armies have been winning victories since the Battle of Fleurusse on the 26th of June, the tide had turned militarily. And so it was felt that the need, the beginning to feel the need for terror wasn't so acute in order to, to maintain this government of exception that 
government in power. So there's that bigger picture. But as far as it affects Robespierre personally, yes, he did make enemies. And ironically, some of his worst enemies were the people on his own side. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, he had enemies amongst royalists. <laughs> but a lot of people hated right. him. A lot of people had reason to. Uh, but his worst enemies, the people actually overthrew him, were the people on his own side. You know, often the people who are sitting behind you are the people you have to watch out for most in politics mm -hmm. because they really know you and they trusted you and these people have been friendly. And there's a, there's a deep divide within that power group uh, of, of um, Montagnard deputies. It's Montagnard, principally Montagnard, yet the Jacobin deputies in the convention who turn on Robespierre and they turn on him in large part because they think he's turning on them mm -hmm. so it's a kill or be killed situation is what happened his trial like so many before was a foregone conclusion and Robespierre was sentenced to death on the day of his execution he rode with 21 others on a cart to the Place de Revolution where King Louis XVI had been killed a year earlier Robespierre was the penultimate execution of the day. It's reported that the executioner removed the bandage holding his jaw in place so it wouldn't obstruct the blade. As his jaw came loose, he let out a horrific scream that ended only when the blade severed its head. A woman named Madame Tussaud then made a wax death mask of the fallen politician's head. In the years that followed, France continued to wrestle with civil unrest and war until five years later in 1799, when a man named Napoleon Bonaparte, a military hero like Julius Caesar, fulfilled Robespierre's worst fears for the Republic and became the de facto dictator of France. Would there have been a Napoleon without Robespierre? It was a risk, and that, that kind of brings us back to that question you asked me about why Robespierre opposed war. Because the danger when you have a war situation, you, you've got the population mobilised, you have someone, people in charge of soldiers who, who have to make quick decisions, and they have a great deal of power in their hands. So there's always a risk with that political destabilisation and militarisation that someone would take advantage of the situation and use it for themselves. So, yeah, I think uh, Napoleon is, is something that's, something that's waiting to happen. There were other contenders as well. And Napoleon wasn't the only general on the make, as it were. Mm -hmm. um, he happened to be a very successful one. He was really good at propaganda. He was really good at uh, presenting himself in a certain way. But what he did in, in November 1799, the so-called coup rumour, that's very much a, a military coup. More than two centuries after his death, Robespierre's legacy remains controversial. His history has been written, subject to revisionism and ongoing debate. His admirers included Lenin, while critics have included people at each end of the political spectrum. But whatever your views on Robespierre, there's no question that he was and remains a pivotal figure in the history of France. Well, stone the flaming crows. It's time for Dan to do the Harry. Watch out for the next podcast and follow Dan's activities at www.danielmainwaring.com.